As we lead up to Easter, we are going to look back at a time of Jesus' crucifixion to see how several individuals were caught up in the dark side of things that led to that moment. We want to see how we can keep ourselves from allowing similar characteristics to exist in us that close the door on the light of the world in our life. Today we ask the question, what are we trying to hold onto that keeps us from embracing the fullness of Christ? So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. We're starting a new series uh, today called The Dark Side of Easter. You know, with, with Easter, everything about our faith clings and hinges to what happened in that moment, what we celebrate at the time of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, even Paul himself said that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no following of Christ. Everything we believe hinges to that resurrection. There were several individuals who were on the dark side of that, so to speak, that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And over these next several weeks, I want us to look at these individuals. And I want us to consider, I want us to think about this over this series. How can we keep ourselves from having characteristics similar to these people that keep the light of the world from shining in our life? How can we keep ourselves from being like them? Today, I want us to look at a man that doesn't get talked about often. He doesn't get talked about a lot. This is an individual who in his day, during the time of Christ, he had extreme power. He had extreme influence. And a lot of it comes because he had extreme wealth. He was one of these individuals that if you've ever read Matthew chapter 23, if you haven't read Matthew chapter 23, I encourage you to go back and read that this week. Because in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus really just rebukes the group that this man belongs to. He comes down on them pretty hard. He tells the people, the listeners, he tells them, he says, ladies and gentlemen, he says, listen to what these guys are teaching. Do what they're teaching, but don't do what they're doing. Because seven times in that passage in Matthew chapter 23, he rebukes them and he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He calls them snakes. He says, you are a brood of vipers. He was serious with these guys. And this man would have been a part of that group of the ones that Jesus was coming down on, on how they were living their life. But not only was this man a part of the group, his family controlled the happenings of the temple. His name was Caiaphas. Maybe you've seen his name. You've read him in scripture when you've been reading the gospels. I want us to, to look at Caiaphas briefly this morning. An interesting archaeological note on Caiaphas. In, in late t- 1990, when they were in the old city of Jerusalem and they were building a new construction, they accidentally uncovered a burial grave. And inside that, archaeologists came and they, they looked through and they discovered in what was known as an ossuary. It was, it was what was used in early years of A.D., as basically caskets for, for, for bodies. And they uncovered this casket. They uncovered this ossuary. 
and they determined that great engraving that it's hard to maybe see right there, but there's an engraving on the side of that. The engraving that they determined was that it said Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Now, a historian, a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus said that Caiaphas that we read about in the Gospels was also known as Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Or Joseph, son of Caiaphas. So based on what they gathered, they gathered that the the bones that were in this ossuary were, were believed to be about 60 years old when they died. So based on their determining of how old the body was when they died, at the time of, of when this ossuary would have been around and the, the decoration and, and what it would have let and, and who it would have represented in the gravings, they truly believe, they, they, they believe strongly that this, these bodies in this ossuary belong to Caiaphas that we read about in the Gospels. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas that we see in the Gospels who was also a high priest. He was a high priest from the years about 6 to 15 AD. He was not the high priest at the time of Jesus, but he was still called the high priest in the Gospels because he held quite a bit of power amongst the people. In fact, I mentioned Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Four other sons of his served in these duties and served in these roles. When Jesus was first arrested, the Gospels show us that he was taken to honest first before he was taken to Caiaphas, before he was taken to anybody else. He held this much power and influence. But the Roman government took his high priestly duties away from him. But after he went to Annas, Annas sent him to Caiaphas to begin his trial that would lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. But before we get to that point, let's look a little bit more at Caiaphas and who he was. He was a high priest which meant that he was the representative of the Jewish people to God. He was one who would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies to represent the people before Yahweh. Caiaphas was also a temple treasury treasurer. He controlled the temple police. So that means that when Jesus came in, maybe you've heard this story, you've read this story. When Jesus came into the temple and he ran out the temple changers, the money changers in the temple, Caiaphas would have known all about that. In fact, Caiaphas, it's likely that he was even there when it happened. And John chapter two is where we see John's recording of, we see this taking place and we see, it doesn't name people, but, but it could be that Caiaphas was one of those that came out and, and spoke to Jesus and said, what authority do you have to do this? In other words, who do you think you are? You need to perform a miracle right now to show us you have some kind of authority to come in here and drive these people out. What Caiaphas would have been angry about was you're messing with my wealth. And Jesus looks at him and he says, okay, here's my miracle. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now Caiaphas and these guys, they they are scoffing at him and they're saying, that's impossible. It took 46 years to build this temple. Who do you think you are? You're going to raise a temple in three days. They don't realize he's talking about his own temple, his own body and who he was. You see, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, he was over low-ranking priest and other attendants. He was, he was the head of the Sanhedrin. 
after the Roman governor, Caiaphas would have been the second most powerful person in Judea. And the fact that he had 19 years in his position meant that he was held in good standing with the Roman government. There was probably a lot of back scratching going on, if you will. Caiaphas was a part of the Sadducees. See, Pharisees were ones who were focused more on religious laws and the teaching in the synagogues. The Sadducees, they, they enjoyed their political roles and their judicial roles, which is why he was probably over the Sanhedrin. They were interested in that political power and the benefits that came with rubbing shoulders with the Roman government and Roman leaders. But another thing about the Sadducees, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Which is probably why when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, Caiaphas wasn't even thinking about he's talking about his personal body because there's no resurrection. That can't take place. Nobody can be risen again. Resurrection is not a thing. But one thing that Caiaphas and the other religious leaders was noticing was that there were crowds following Jesus. And where crowds were beginning to follow, this was causing an issue. See, they probably wouldn't have been so much concerned about what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching had there not been crowds. But the problem with crowds meant that there could become an insurrection. There could become a division amongst the people. There could become a problem for the Jewish leaders, which would then become a problem with the Roman leadership, which then would become a problem for everyone. And the crowds that were following Jesus, they weren't small crowds. These were hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people who were following Jesus and listening to his teachings. Many of these teachings which were coming against Caiaphas and who they were. In John chapter 10, we see Jesus teaching these things like, I am the gate. I am the way to the father. There's no other way to the father except through me. And he's what? He, he would say, I'm the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In fact, we see these words in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Let's look at them. Let's remember these words here. He said, the father loves me because I sacrifice my life. So I may take it back again. And he says this, he says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. And also to take it up again for this is what my father has commanded. He's teaching these things. These teachings are disturbing Caiaphas and all the other high priests and the other teachers of the, of the law and, and, and the things that they have learned well, we go into the very next chapter, John chapter 11, and this is where we see the encounter with Jesus and Lazarus. Maybe you've heard this story before. Lazarus is dead. He's pronounced dead. Jesus shows up finally to Martha and Mary, and they're crying and weeping. We see this famous verse where Jesus wept with them because of the empathy he felt for them and their loss. And then we see Jesus make this proclamation. Remember, Caiaphas wouldn't believe in resurrection. And Jesus makes this proclamation in uh, John chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I told her I am the resurrection 
and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You imagine Caiaphas hearing that Jesus is making these kind of proclamations. And then Jesus walks to the tomb and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And out of a tomb walks a man who had been pronounced dead, wearing the clothes of a dead man, but yet he's alive. And now the resurrection was real. Well, this caused a stir, as you can imagine, because the very next scene in John chapter 11 that we see is Caiaphas and these priests and these leaders having a conversation. And we wonder, how does John know about this conversation that Caiaphas and these priests are having? John wasn't in the middle of these conversations, so how can he know? Well, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus, Luke was a physician. So you can imagine he's probably very detailed in his recordings. He even says to Theophilus, I've recorded meticulously. I've, 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 I've taken, I've gone to great lengths to, to make sure everything I'm writing to you is true and real. And we see him write this in Acts. He wrote the gospel of Luke and he, he wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter six, verse seven, we see him write these words to Theophilus. And he tells them, Theophilus, many of the priests, many of the people who were priests in this day, they began to follow Jesus after his resurrection. So basically what we're seeing and what we're gathering is, okay, John's having a conversation with these priests who began to follow Christ now. And John's like, guys, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're seeing happening over here on our side. What were y'all talking about on y'all's side? So you can only think that these priests begin to tell John and the other disciples, let us tell you what we were talking about and what we were seeing. And so John then records what they're telling him. And we see it in John chapter 11. Starting at verse 45. See, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. This is what John and the disciples were seeing. They're seeing all the people believe believe in Jesus after he did what he did. But then you've got these priests who are now following Christ telling John, let me tell you what else was going on. In verse 46, some went to the Pharisees and which would have been us if they're telling the story to John. And they told us what Jesus had done. They share to us that Jesus proclaimed, I'm the resurrection and the life. Then they tell us that he goes to the door of this tomb and cries out for Lazarus. And Lazarus comes walking out. They tell us about this. And then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together, the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. And listen to what they say. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. See, these guys are revealing their heart in this moment. And what we see being revealed in them is what we need to be cautious of in our life. 
Because these priests, they weren't really concerned about the people of Israel. They were concerned about what they were going to lose. They were concerned about losing their power, their influence, their wealth. All the while, these leaders are thinking in this room, what, can, what do we need to do to hold on to what we have? Jesus is outside amongst hundreds and thousands of tens of thousands of people telling, him, telling them to follow Yahweh. You, you've got to lose your life to gain it. To follow Yahweh, you've got to deny yourself. Guys, Jesus was saying, you can't serve two masters. You can either serve God and follow Yahweh, or you'll serve money and what you think it brings you. Jesus was teaching sacrifice. The religious leaders were wondering, what do we need to do? to hold on to what we have. And then we see Caiaphas speak up. Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time said, you don't know what you're talking about. He's exclaiming this. He's probably very angry. He says, you don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Understand what he's saying. He's not, in, he's not purposefully making a messianic declaration. He is making a declaration of murder. The same man who teaches the law of God that says, thou shalt not murder, is behind closed doors with other religious leaders planning, you don't understand, we need to do what we need to do to kill this man. Before anything else happens, before we lose what we have, my wealth is at stake. My power that I have right now is at stake. I've worked a lot to have 19 years with the Roman government. Don't let me lose that. But John then says, after knowing everything that's going on, writing this and realizing the, the whole picture at this moment. He says, you know, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. As a high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world to break down every wall of prejudice and discrimination and bring together as one body the family of God. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. And in Matthew's gospel, we see more of this plotting where Matthew writes that they, they said, you know, we realized 
Matthew, we couldn't do this publicly. Because if we did this publicly, it was going to cause a riot. So we knew we had to be very sleuthful in how we did it. We knew we had to be very secretive in how we did it. And, and we'll look more next week at how that came to pass and what they did to arrest Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 65, we see Jesus now standing face to face in front of him and Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is questioning him, but Matthew tells us that Jesus remains silent. So you can imagine these priests, they're telling Matthew the story. Matthew, we're in this room and Caiaphas is, 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 is questioning Jesus, but Jesus is just standing there. He's quiet. And then the high priest Caiaphas, he said to him, I demand in the name of the living God that you tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Well, then Jesus wasn't quiet anymore. (laughs) He replied and he said, you've said it. And in the future, you'll see it. You'll see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of the heaven. And at this proclamation, these guys tell Matthew, this drove Caiaphas nuts. Caiaphas then ripped his clothes in horror and screamed blasphemy. Why do we need any other witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. In other words, he is proclaiming to be equal with God. That is blasphemy. That's all we need. Send him to the Roman leaders to be crucified, to be executed. Caiaphas and these guys, they've got him right where they want him. We have resisted this man. We have stopped what he's trying to do. Or have they? Jesus goes to Pilate and Pilate can't find any fault in this man as far as he's concerned. And he tells Caiaphas that. And Caiaphas says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's going to cause an insurrection. We can't execute him. You are the only ones who can execute him. You've got to do it. So Pilate says, okay, I tell you what. He looks at the crowd and he says, you can have Barabbas, the criminal, or you can have Jesus, the king of the Jews. Which one do you want? And the crowd starts yelling, crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And maybe Caiaphas and his guys are out there leading this chant. And as the chant goes louder, I can't help but think maybe Caiaphas is kind of sinking back and thinking to himself, thinking to himself, we did it. We did it. It's going to be over. So then they put Jesus on a cross and they, Pilate places this sign above Jesus that reads the king of the Jews. And scripture tells us that Caiaphas goes to him and says, wait, 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 Pilate, don't put that sign up there. Don't, don't put that up there. He proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. That's what it should say. And Pilate would say, said, what I've written, I've written. Otherwise, I'm not changing it. Because see, for Pilate, what this was, was this, a, this was a declaration of Rome's power. This is just another king fallen at the hands of the mighty Roman army. But to Caiaphas and the priest, if this is the king of the Jews, my God, help us, what have we done? We have just resisted the living God that I just proclaimed in this man's face. But despite their willingness to admit it, that's exactly what they were doing. They were resisting God. All because they weren't willing to let go what they needed to let go of 
to embrace Jesus and embrace everything that Jesus wanted to give them. Caiaphas was more concerned about maintaining his way of life than giving his life completely to Christ. Caiaphas didn't trust God. He trusted more in his position. He trusted more in his personal connection with government and what government could give them. And this is where we have to look at our own lives and we have to say, and we have to say, what am I doing that's keeping the light of the world from truly shining in and through my life? How could I possibly be like Caiaphas? Let me tell you how we can be like Caiaphas. When we strive to hold on to those things which we know we need to let go of. When we know there's something that needs to be sacrificed in our life and we're unwilling to make that sacrifice, we're being just like Caiaphas. Salvation in Christ is free. Jesus did everything that needed to be done to give us salvation and make us new in a relationship with God. But following Christ will cost us something. Saying yes to God will cost us something. But the problem is saying no is going to cost us a whole lot more. And the irony of it all is the very thing that we're afraid to lose to give everything to Christ, we're going to lose it anyway. And Jesus would tell his disciples one day, Matthew would record these words in Matthew chapter 16. He would tell them, he would say, guys, if any of you wants to be my father, you've got to turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up for your life for my sake, you'll save it. And then he says these powerful words. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? but you lose your soul. Is anything worth more than your own soul? Jesus said, but I I can't let this go. I can't, this, this gives me too much. What good is it to gain that? What good is it? I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and the speaker was talking about how change. And he was talking about how so often there's so much resistance to change. So much resistance to any kind of change taking place. And he said these words that they were really kind of simplistic, but they hit me in a new way that afternoon. He said, people don't really fear change. They fear loss. They're afraid of what they're going to lose because of the change. And that is so true for us and with Christ as well. Because see, what Christ came to do is Christ didn't come to make us a better version of our sinful selves. Paul said he came to make you new. He came to change you, to transform you. And really the change, we want that change. 
We know there's something in us that needs to change. But the problem is we're, fr- we're afraid of letting go of what we got to let go of to embrace the change that God's going to make in our life. We're afraid of what we think those things bring us that we're going to lose. And it reminded me as I was studying this week of one other encounter with Jesus of, a, of, of someone that all we know him as is the rich young ruler. It tells us that he approaches Jesus and he asks him, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he says, oh, I've done all those. I've been great at those. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, I tell you what, go sell everything you have and then give it to the poor. And then the gospels tell us that he walks away grieving and sad. And the word there that describes how he walks away grieving is the same word that describes how Jesus was in the garden. When he was grieving and praying, God, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. This same strong power of grief, this man walks away. Because he can't do what Jesus is asking him. He can't let go of what Jesus is asking him to let go of. In his book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller says this. He says, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money... The man started to grieve because money was to him what the father was to Jesus. It was the center of his identity. So see, the problem for this young man was not his wealth. It was where he placed his identity. And he couldn't see all he was going to gain because he was afraid of what he had to lose. Don't ever let... Your focus be so much on what you are going to lose and give up that you miss everything you're gaining in him. Eugene Peterson, when he writes this translation in the Message Bible, and he's talking about the rich young ruler, he he says it this way. He says he was holding on tight to a lot of things and he couldn't bear to let go. What Jesus was pushing this man to do was go deeper into a relationship with Yahweh to not focus so much on religion and what you have to do, but focus more on your relationship with him. Because the more you focus on the relationship, all the doing takes care of itself. He was basically trying to get him to understand, man, what you need to do is start worshiping God more than you worship the other things. Even an atheist by the name of David Wallace Foster has an understanding of the importance of worship. It's it's odd to quote an atheist in church. I get that. But listen to what he says. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. We understand that's a very empty way of looking at death. But that's because we worship someone that brings us life and life more abundantly. The beginning of that quote, he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. This is an atheist saying that. And he makes this comment. He says, the compelling reason for maybe even choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
pray this guy is on the precipice of understanding the importance of worshiping God. Just as C.S. Lewis was when he was an atheist. And many, many others. Don't let holding too tightly describe you. Holding on to the very things we need to let go of without realizing we're worshiping them. Some of us are holding on to our past sin, our past mistakes, hurt, anger, regrets. We're holding on to these things and we're giving them so much attention that they're basically a place of worship in our life. Some of us, we're not, we're, we, we can't let go of our own plans for our life. I can't release that plan. I can't trust God. I can't let that go. This is my plan. I can't let it go. We can't let go of our pride. We can't let go of our autonomy. We can't let go of our control because we're afraid of what we're going to lose. But whenever we hold on to anything with closed fists, we are not open to God and what he wants to give us and do in us. So what are you afraid to lose today? What are you afraid to let go of? What's keeping the light of the world from truly shining through you and in your life? Paul would tell the church of Philippi this and Philippians chapter three, we see it, but he was talking about who he was in his past. And he was saying, listen, I was a, I was a a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, if you think of me like Caiaphas, he didn't write this, but you can think of it this way. I was like, I was working my way up. I was leading the charge to kill every person that was proclaiming to be a follower of Christ. But then he says this, he says, you know what? As soon as I encountered Jesus, all that stuff I was pursuing, all that stuff that I would have thought was a a, a huge loss in my life, I now consider it worthless compared to knowing God. He says, all that stuff I was once pursuing is now worthless. It's meaningless to me. In fact, he uses such strong language. He says, it's all comparatively a pile of fecal waste compared to knowing God. You're not losing anything, Paul would say. You're gaining so much more. In his letter to the church of Galatia, he would tell him, he said, in Galatians chapter two, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, I don't live for myself anymore. And where before I might would have thought that was a great loss, but it's not a loss. I live for Christ now. In other words, I'm doing everything I can to do what he told his disciples to do. And that's to be a light, like a light shining on a city on a hill to proclaim the goodness of God. In his letter to the church of Ephesus and Ephesians, he would tell them, he would say, once you were in darkness, but now the light lives in you. So let that light shine through you because that light produces all that is good and all that is right. So what, what do we need to let go of? What do we need to release? What are we afraid of letting go of? Don't be like Caiaphas and resist what God wants to do in your life. Because as we see from Caiaphas and so many others, it's futile to resist God. And don't walk away 
grieving over what you may lose. Walk away rejoicing in what you gain in your relationship with the Father. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week. Thank you.